0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Xfinity. Some things are slow, like snail races. Other things are fast, like Xfinity XFi. Get fast speeds, even when everyone is online, working to make Wi-Fi simple, easy, awesome. More at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply.
1: The the problem we're trying to solve is um, stinky... Stinky workout clothes.
2: That's Mark Ramey. He's an editor-at-large at Runner's World magazine. And the specific problem he's talking about is transporting stinky workout clothes
3: when you're not going right home after you've worked out.
1: Uh, my solution, which I, if I do say so myself, is, is really brilliantly elegant um, because it requires <laughs> no special tools or talent or, or um, gear or anything, is, is something I'll call the clothes burrito. And that entails essentially uh, thinking of your dirty workout clothes as as ingredients of a of a burrito, as the name suggests. Um, the, the tortilla would be the least the least stinky, exactly the least nasty of your garments, which usually is the shirt or jacket if it's jacket weather. Yeah. So that gets laid out flat on the floor, and uh, the, the the filling, if you will, uh, consists of the nastiest stuff, which usually um, what usually is you know the the, the shorts. Socks uh, for me is usually the next nastiest. Those all those all go in the middle of the uh, tortilla, as it were, the uh, the shirt or jacket, and then they all essentially just get rolled up into a nice little bundle. And uh, as a bonus, if you're wearing a long sleeve shirt or a jacket, if if it's cool enough, um, you can actually wrap and sometimes even um, tie a knot the sleeves and and have a little handy carrying strap.
4: What
2: what do you think is the uh, guacamole of workout clothes? <laughs>
1: <laughs> the guacamole of workout clothes. If your workout clothes have anything even even remotely resembling guacamole, you've got bigger trouble than, than stinky clothes.
2: Yeah, yeah.
3: I think if I did this, if I were like putting my clothes together in a clothes burrito, I would probably think to myself, mm, burrito, and then I would go get a burrito. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Meantime, your clothes are festering, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
2: This is how to do everything. I'm Mike, and I'm Ian. On today's show. How to pronounce the longest word in the German language. And how to end a text or chat conversation. Which is hard to do without being really awkward. But
3: first, jury selection for the trial of accused mobster Whitey Bolger is happening right now.
2: Now, it must be exciting if you get picked to be on that jury. You know, it's a big deal. It must also, if you have ever watched a mob movie, it must also be pretty terrifying to be picked for that jury. Jay Albanese is on the line with us now. He's a criminologist at Virginia Commonwealth University. So, Jay, first of all, we, we always hear about this, but does the mob really intimidate jurors?
4: Oh, sure. There's a long history of it. As a matter of fact, going back to the 60s, uh, Jimmy Hoffa, the trade union leader, was convicted of jury tampering. And there were just, there are a few cases, even as recently as uh, last year, uh, Angelo Ruggiero Jr., uh, a Gambino uh, soldier in New York pled guilty just last year to uh, threatening a cooperating witness.
2: So what? What kind? Of, how are they? Uh, how are they tampering? How are they intimidating uh, jurors?
4: The way to do that is either with a carrot or a stick. The carrot would be a bride, and there was a case in the early '90s uh, in in a mafia case where they traced one of the witnesses was a girlfriend of a guy sitting in prison. So the mafia got to the guy in prison and said, you know. We'll get you 25 grand if she uh, uh, testifies uh, for us rather than against us. So that's the carrot approach, and the stick approach is uh, the Bergerio case I just mentioned. He said to the cooperating witness, he said, uh, I think the quote was, uh, if this is true you know, about you being a cooperating witness, you're going to have a problem with me.
3: <laughs>
4: and and that, that was enough to convict him for threatening
3: a witness. So do they? Okay, so those are people who are going to be testifying. But if I'm like just on the jury, am I also at risk?
4: Uh, yeah. In in the current case, you might not be simply because uh, the crimes that are going to be talked about are quite old. So it's very likely that most people on the jury are going to be an entire generation younger. Uh, so they're going to be talking about facts of history. Whereas you get to most cases, it's fairly current. So if it's if we're back in the '90s and John Gotti's on trial, it's a different Thing because uh, John Gotti had a presence on the street. He had authority on the street. So uh, sure, if you were a juror in New York City, which you would be in, in that case, uh, sure, there, there would be a fear that, well, perhaps uh, somebody who's, who likes Gotti would not appreciate the fact that you voted to convict. So sure, there, there uh, would be some reasonable fear.
3: Are there examples of, of people, maybe associates of Gotti, getting to jurors?
4: Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, Gotti uh, was tried three times and was acquitted. Uh, the first two, you recall, that's how he got that name, the Teflon Don, Yeah, uh, was because he, he was acquitted. And of course, in, in those cases, it was later determined that uh, uh, jury tampering did, in fact, take place. Because the reason why juries are an attractive thing to go after in Uh, In most uh, places, you need a a unanimous vote by the jury to convict. So you just have to get to one person. If you have one person in your corner, you have the case won.
2: It's a good value.
4: Whereas whereas with with witnesses, it's a much riskier proposition because there's tons of witnesses, as there certainly are expected to be in the Bolger case. There's going to be loads of witnesses.
3: So if you, based on your knowledge and experience, if you needed to intimidate somebody, what would you do? What would be the best and most effective way to do it? You think?
4: Well, if you if you look through history, uh, it's uh, going after jurors has been the primary method, simply because you just need one juror on your side for an acquittal. Uh, but the government has has gotten clever over the years. Uh, after Gotti's two acquittals in the in the late '80s, when they tried him again on a different charge in the early '90s, they said, "What well, we are going to go for." Uh, an anonymous jury, and that's what's happening in the Bulger case. So, if their names are known, uh, it's very easy through internet searches and things like that. If you can't get to them, you can get to a family member or a friend of theirs. So, even if you don't threaten them, you might be able to get to them, you know, through some connection they have. So, the government is, has has gotten much more clever about it. Uh, and in the Bulger case, they will do what they did. In, in the Gotti case in the early 90s, where jurors are never revealed until the case is all done.
3: Well, this has been great. Thanks for your time, Jay.
4: Yes, uh, I appreciate it, and uh, good luck with it. And believe me, it's going to be and the headlines in the Boston Papers every day, especially as the more interesting witnesses come up, because there will be you know, uh, Steve Flemmy and uh, a bunch of you know, blasts from the past are going to be testifying.
2: Uh, greatest hits of mobsters. Absolutely. Do we, do we have any great nicknames headed to the stand?
4: Well, I mean, Steve Flemming, he, he was sentenced, what, in 2008 for uh, pleading guilty to 10 murders. He's uh, Steve uh, the Rifleman Flemming. Oh, that's oh. <laughs> no.
2: yeah. not a subtle nickname. <laughs>
4: How'd you get that? Never mind.
2: <laughs> Jay Albanese is the author of Organized Crime in Our Times. This week, Germany got rid of a law regulating the labeling of beef. And you know, if there's one thing we're interested in on how to do everything, it's German laws about the regulation of beef. Now, the word for that law is the longest word in the German language. It's 63 letters long. It's like a sentence that goes all the way across the page and down to the next line. But it's just one word, and now we
3: have to say goodbye to it. On the line with us now is our German consultant, Philip. Gotica.
2: So, Philip, you have this word in front of you. Uh, first of all, just h- how do you pronounce it?
5: Rindfleisch we We'll
2: be right back with the end of this word from Germany. And now we're back with the second half of this German word. Can
5: I, can I hear that again? <laughs> okay. Rindfleisch Do you know what that word means? Yeah. I mean, you sort of work your way back from the well, end.
3: Yeah, so like, what if you were to break that word down, because like, I imagine it's a compound word of some sort, Like, what are the yeah. parts?
5: Every time you see an S... That's that's that kind of means of the that sort of signifies I guess the genitive but don't you know quiz me on that so the first part up to the etik- up to the ungs is uh, rindfleisch is cattle meat etikettierung mm. is labeling so cattle meat labeling that's uh-huh. the first part and then <laughs> Überwachungsaufgabenübertragungs means uh, overseeing assignment transfer right and then the last part is Gesetz law Gesetz Gesetz just means law.
3: You're a native German speaker. You grew up yeah. in Germany. How yeah. many times have you said this word? Uh,
5: today I said it three times, I guess.
3: So in your life, this is the first time you've ever been in No, you would not say this word. Okay. Well, so now this word is gone. They're removing yeah. it from yeah. the German language, uh, which means that a new word, which the English version is the Motor Vehicle Indemnity Insurance, mm. whatever the German word is for that,
5: yeah, that you have to deal with.
3: Right, it's, it's Kraftfahrzeughaftpflichtversicherung. Right. Kraft, yeah,
5: Kraftfahrzeughaftpflichtversicherung. That's what it is. Right. So, is that one people know. It's Kraftfahrzeughaftpflichtversicherung.
2: Ah, yeah. All right,
3: Philip, thank you for your time. Thanks for explaining this.
5: Oh, you're very welcome. Should we say, auf Auf Wiedersehen. Auf Wiedersehen oder Tschüss?
2: It's, it's going to be hard to say goodbye to that word. Yeah, I know. We just, it's like we just met it and it's already gone. We're going to miss you. Longest word in the German language. You were so long and so young.
5: How do I say goodbye? Hey, Mark, what can we help you with? I have a question. How do you stop texting? D- I mean
1: there's no doesn't seem to be any formal way to end a text conversation.
2: Right. So you, you don't mean like uh how do you stop a texting addiction? You mean if you're having like a text conversation how do you end it?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. How how are you ending your conversations these days, Mark?
1: Uh usually have to explain uh that I have something to do, which is usually true. I I have somewhere to go or something to do.
3: Yeah.
2: And then
1: uh tell them that I, I I'm sorry I have to go now
3: so you feel bad even though you're what you're doing is is being honest
2: it doesn't feel quite right somehow
3: no it
1: doesn't
2: yeah I, I I think like you know without the without the visual cues that you have in a conversation or or even the little cues you have on the phone it's just it's so hard for something to come to a true natural end
1: it is it, it doesn't feel natural when you have to essentially just hang up on somebody
2: well you know what I think we should do I think we should uh we should have the rest of this interview over a chat and see if we can come to to a good way to end some text conversations. And we can try different
3: endings. That sounds like a good idea. All right. Okay. I look forward to hearing you uh, talk like a robot, Mark. <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> I look forward to that, too. All
2: right. So for these robot voices, I see we have uh, so a few options, a few different voices. There's one called Mike. I think, Mike, we're going to make that your voice. That's, that makes sense. So we can hear that now. Hello. Uh, there's another male voice, Rich. We'll, we'll set that up for Mark.
0: Yeah.
6: Hey, guys.
2: Uh, and that, we're out of uh, male voices, so I will be played by Crystal.
6: Hmm, who's Crystal? This is Crystal. All
2: right, so here we go. This is our chat conversation with Mark, uh, transcribed, and then converted back into audio.
6: Well, we've looked around a bit at a few different ideas people have for ending chat conversations. We'll share some sign-offs, and you can tell us how they feel to you. What do you think?
0: Let's give it a try. Probably the most common sign-off is K. It's to the point, but also abrupt. What about Ta? Like in Tata, for now? I have seen Ta.
6: Okay, well let's act it out. Let's say I wanted to end the conversation right now. And I was like, all right, Mark, ta. Is that a possibility?
0: If we were still conversing, just throwing in ta and stopping still seems too short.
6: Yes. Right. One thing I like to do is acknowledge the awkwardness of ending a chat conversation a bit by typing something. That's clearly a lie. So, like, what if I said this? Okay, Mark, well, my cat's on fire, so I should probably go deal with that later on.
0: I have not thought of that. I kind of like it. Do you have a cat? If not, here's an excuse to get one. Yes, three, so it works. Please don't light your cat on fire for our benefit. Go ahead and try a lie to end this chat. Okay, Ian and Mike. An airplane just crashed into my house, so I got to go. Love it. Perfect.
6: We actually both lol it out loud.
0: Perhaps I should start out slower.
6: Sure, try another one.
0: Well, Ian and Mike, my house won't paint itself. Text you later. Yup. Have you ever tried ending with I love you?
6: Wait, Mike, have you done that? I thought you really loved me.
0: I have not tried I love you. Mike, who did you really try that with? An old friend. The conversation ended immediately. I will keep that in mind.
6: Okay, Mark, let me ask you this. Do you use emoticons?
0: Yes. Which ones? The easy ones that you just click on. Smiley face. The smiley face seems to negate the bad feeling of the short goodbye.
6: Yeah, I wonder if it works for anything. Like, well, I think we should break up. Smiley face.
0: What do you think? Are you ready to end the chat? Sure.
6: Maybe a big lie. Plus an emoticon.
0: Well, Mike Indian, my pants are on fire. Got to go for now. Smiley face.
6: Expertly done.
0: Thank you. Well, Mark, this was a lot of fun. I'm actually in my barn birthing a calf. She's crowning.
6: I better go. A bunch of pirates have just seized my desk. Smiley face. Duh.
3: We heard from Nora. Nora
2: listens to our podcast while doing her AP Spanish summer assignment. Nora, these next 15 seconds are for you.
6: Ya yeah, se que no
7: vendrás
6: todo lo que fue. Ay, Dios mío.
2: Get them college credits, Nora. Get them. hey, we're still collecting your toilets. Get your nominations to howto at npr.org. Matt is on the line with us now
3: from Boston. Hey, Matt, tell us about your toilet. So the Bleacher Bar is
7: um, a bar in Lansdowne Street that's actually built into the side of Fenway Park underneath the bleacher seats. So the unique thing about the bar is that it has this very large double-wide garage door that they can open up that leads directly on to center field. Whoa. So you, when you're sitting in the bar, you have a great view right onto the field even during games. You can It's right on the warning track. Wow. So the men's room at the Bleacher Bar is built into the back of the bar and on, in kind of like a raised room. And okay. the interesting thing about it is that above the urinals, there are windows at eye level so that while you're standing at the urinal, you can see out into the bar that allows you to see the patrons in the bar. It allows you to see the whole setup, but it allows you just to, to still see out of that giant door that they have. So you don't miss a second of the game while you're using the men's
2: room. Oh, wow. That's brilliant. So you are, while you're peeing, you're watching the Red Sox play.
7: Exactly. The interesting thing is that it's not so high that the other patrons in the bar can't see in to look at your kind of dreamy eyes as you're looking out onto Fenway Park.
3: (laughs) So is it possible that you could meet eyes with somebody in the bar, like in a romantic moment while you're peeing?
7: (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's that's more than possible. Uh, Actually, when you're up there and you look down, there always seems to be one person who's never been in the bar before, who's very fascinated with the windows and is is trying to either wave or make eye contact with the person who's uh, currently standing there.
3: <laughs> what a great story to tell your kids someday. It's like, "When did you meet?" Well, we're, our eyes met across the bar. Oh, what were you doing? Well, he your dad was peeing. <laughs> it's great. And you get to
7: you get to feel like you're uh you're in the middle of Fenway Park, uh, you know, doing your business.
3: So, are you is it possible you could be peeing and and you could see a home run coming right at you? That is possible.
2: That would mess up your concentration. Yeah. Yeah, well, I always wear my glove when I'm peeing, just in case.
3: Congratulations, Matt. You have this week's Toilet of the Week.
7: Oh, glad I could be of service.
2: That does it for this week's show, what we learned today, Mike. I learned that when uh, a Mafia Don uh, tries to intimidate you, one way he'll do that, he'll
3: is he'll say, you're gonna have a problem with me.
2: what what were you what else would you assume he meant?
3: Well, that's exact I mean I, it, I feel like it could be fairly innocuous. Yeah, like I might be sending you a lot of uh, notes on Facebook. I might be liking a lot of the things you post. Yeah, and it might
2: be it might get weird. I feel like understanding metaphor is probably that's probably a big part of being a successful member of a mob. Oh yeah, yeah like when they say, I'm gonna make you an offer you can't refuse what what is it? do you have yeah a good deal on some canned goods? I'm all ears, friend i I learned that there's uh there is in the world a burrito I don't want to eat a stinky stinky clothes burrito. Don't want to put that in my mouth although i I feel like uh you could really multitask if you were willing to work out in a tortilla shirt maybe and some uh, ground beef shorts then you could actually make a closed burrito afterward. That was a good post-workout snack burrito as well. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Haga with technical direction from Lorna White.
0: Hi, Mike and Ian. This is Maddie from Idaho. Um, can I be your intern this week? Thank you.
2: Our intern this week is Maddie. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org and visit our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks.
3: For
5: humor, you get an A. That's, no, For come accuracy, on. you probably get a D. <laughs>
3: I was good up to the beginning. I w- I feel like I did <laughs> a <proper> good <laughs> job at the <laughs> yes, up start. To the, beginning. Up to the first letter,
5: you were great. <laughs>